Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have spoken, and it has been so, is so, and will continue to be so on throughout eternity. We thank you, Lord, that you are true. As the word says, let God be true and every man a liar. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help me honor you and serve your people through your word this morning. Holy Spirit, completely relying on you to help me so that Christ is honored. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I've titled this message, How a Dead Soul Comes to Life. The Cost of Becoming Jesus' Disciple. And one of the things that point to what we value most in life is what we put our time, energy, and money into. In fact, what you and I put our time, money, and energy into is really our God. My question this morning is, how does a dead soul come to life? Is there even such a thing as a soul? According to naturalism, there's no such thing as a soul, because a soul means that there is an immaterial thing that actually exists that you and I can't feel, taste, or touch. According to naturalism, all we are is a bunch of molecules that accidentally came together through the miracle of macroevolution. So this idea that there's anything immaterial about us is, quote-unquote, irrational superstition. Now why do I take the time to emphasize this? Because that is the world in which we live, and that is the world that governs, believe it or not, the powers that be. And so you and I as theists, Christian theists more specifically, we need to understand the, what Paul calls, strongholds that have people bound up and do not allow them to see who Christ really is. And I'm not going to get into the whole idea of can you weigh your thoughts... That's, I don't even want to get into that. I do want to say this, that Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians said, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now Paul here, among other things, is saying the fact that the eternal, immaterial world, which naturalism denies is primary and it is everlasting, without end. Whereas, in comparison, the material world is temporal and it is in flux, it is passing away. Now Jesus in our text is going to address the soul. And he's going to do it in such a way that he will attach supreme importance to it over against all other things. Listen to me. He's going to attach supreme value to your soul 
above and beyond anything else, which means your career, your dreams, your aspirations. It means about your stuff. So everything that you value is subordinate to what Jesus is going to say in this text. Now, this does not mean that the physical world is bad. Christians are not dualists in the sense that what is physical is bad and what is spiritual is good. The Bible does not teach that. Rather, what we're going to see here is the value when compared to an image bearer's soul has no comparison. Do I have your attention? In chapter... In this chapter, chapter 16 of Matthew, there's three big ideas that the writer is wanting to emphasize to us, which culminate in the requirements that Jesus sets out for those that are dead to God to come to life, to embrace what it means to follow Him, the cost of discipleship as has been rendered by many. Now in her book, It's Dangerous to Believe, Mary Eberstadt explains with great precision and insight that in the West and in the East, Christians are the target of persecution, either it be in physical persecution, social persecution, even legal persecution. Not only that, through progressive secularism, she shows how a new totalitarianism is being spawned and intolerance toward any dissenting voices being punished through either lawsuits, media ridicule, and even the expense of a person's life. This state of affairs has jeopardized the livelihood of many Christians and has landed some of them in jail which was the case for a teacher in the UK who offered to pray for her student. She was imprisoned. Some of them landed in lawsuits, one of which we know of, the florist in Washington State. Why? Because she refused to make a flower arrangement to celebrate a same-sex marriage. And in the Arab states, where ISIS is in charge, there are many believers that are being killed and beheaded. Specifically, if you recall, the 21 Egyptians, the Egyptian Christians who were beheaded. So, prayer lands a teacher in prison. A different view of marriage earns the florist a lawsuit. Okay? And merely being a Christian gets a lot of believers their heads being lopped off. This isn't new. This is the same old song and dance throughout history. We are just being a little bit more aware of it because we live here and now through the medium of the news and Facebook and Internet. We now are coming in contact with things we, we couldn't have 30 years ago. But make no mistake about it, this is not new. And it will continue until Christ comes back. 
So, what Jesus has to say in this passage is not only pertinent and immediately applicable, it is also utterly hopeful and it should embolden the believer. Okay? Now in chapter 16, there are three big ideas. Three things that are going on here. First of all, there is Jesus' identity is being doubted by the established rulers. Secondly, Jesus' identity is being revealed specifically through the Heavenly Father. And thirdly, Jesus' demand is definite. It is absolute. That means that what he's going to say, if you're going to follow him, it is crystal clear. So let's read verses 1 through 12. Jesus' identity is doubted. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away, and the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began to discuss this among themselves, saying, He said that, that because we did not bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So there's a couple of things here I want to point out. First of all, there's a request. And the request is for a sign. Where the Pharisees ask Jesus a sign from heaven. Unfortunately, they can discern not only what's going on before them, but they also are completely and totally really unable to hear Jesus' words. Now something had deeply gone awry with them. And their cluelessness is nothing to laugh at. And it is very, very sad. Jesus describes their problem in verses 1 through 4. And he says that an, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is unfolding, essentially, King Jesus. And in the, uh, from the beginning, he points out the lineage of Christ. Pointing back to where Christ came from. He's the root of Jesse. Then he points out that this is the one who was to come. And John the Baptist's ministry comes. Then we see Jesus in the wilderness getting ready for his public ministry. Where he shows us how to fight temptation with the word of God. Then in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, he is now on the Sermon on the Mount, essentially giving a new 
law. He is interpreting and explaining things the Jews did not understand and explaining things that were previously hidden. And so, and then from then on, you start seeing his acts, his, his wonders being proclaimed. So all this has already happened, and I promise you, the Sadducees and Pharisees already had been exposed to this. So them asking him again, which they do, by the way, in chapter 13 of Matthew, now they're asking him again, show us a sign. That's the same thing. It's a sign of Jonah, and I'm going to get to that right now. But he says that an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Wow. He is describing our generation. Last week's sermon on the whole purpose of marriage points to how Christ is the groom and the church is his bride. Right? There's something connected to that here. Because the groom has spoken in very different ways in the past. And now, in these last days, he has incarnated and is speaking in the flesh to these people. And yet, and yet, like Israel, they and we refuse to listen. Think about it. Just as Israel is described in this manner during their wilderness wanderings. Why did they wander? They didn't trust God. Mind you, they saw the miracles in Egypt. They saw signs. They saw God move wondrously and definitely and without question. And still, they didn't trust Him. It was powerful. Just as Israel often tested Yahweh in prior centuries, so too now the Pharisees and the Sadducees are repeating the manner all over again. Okay. Why? Because the God-man, the Son, God the Son is in front of them and they can't see. They saw, but they can't see. So why is sign-seeking the problem? Utterly underneath sign-seeking is they don't trust what God has already revealed in Scripture. What God has already done in space-time history. He says... Yeah, I'm going to give you a sign, but it's not the sign you want. I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. Then Jesus tells his disciples to beware of their teaching. Why? Because essentially their teaching, their teaching has a false view. Ready? Of Scripture? Sadducees. And puts tradition above what's already been revealed in Scripture, the Pharisees. Okay? So both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, although they are common enemies, among other things, they come together. And they want to they do away with Christ. 
And why? Because the stakes are high. Why? Because he was clear to a Jew what he was saying. Even though a lot of times in the Gospels we read it and, uh, through Gentile eyes and we, we, don't, we don't have a historical uh, uh, um, context, we, we miss a lot of things. But believe me, the Jews were clear. Very clear on a lot of stuff. And they're just going, we know what you're saying, but this can't be. So both had erroneous views of reality. Pharisees exalted their traditions above the written word of God and prevented their disciples and themselves from entering to the kingdom. The Sadducees, claiming to know the scripture and the power of God, knew neither, as Jesus elsewhere corrects them. Both missed the mark and wanted a sign from him. And so I want to talk about what a sign is and what it means to discern. First of all, a sign, the term sign in the Bible is very nuanced. Uh, it could mean that um, it could point to tongues, for example, in 1 Corinthians, where tongues are a sign, a warning sign to non-believers that God is manifesting himself in the midst of the congregation. Again, circumcision was a sign of the covenant. Uh, it was a marker to indicate that one was part of the community of God. Miracles are a sign that God has intervened contrary to the usual course of nature through himself, through Christ, or through his representatives, which is the church. Signs explain how one is recognized. If you remember how Judas said, hey, you know, because they didn't have Facebook and they didn't have cameras and they didn't have pictures, they didn't know what Jesus looked like. So Judas said, don't worry, the, the guy I'm going to kiss in the garden, that's the sign that that's Jesus and you can come and take him away. Also, the Pharisees wanted to see the goods. In other words, if Jesus really was who they knew he was claiming to be, then perform some miraculous deed for us. But they didn't realize that they had a major problem with knowledge. That is, they had a huge epistemic situation. And it was this. They thought they knew, but they didn't. They thought they knew God, but they didn't know God. They knew how to apply their knowledge to the weather. They could observe that the sky was turning a certain color and it was going to rain. And in fact, after you've been in rain and you've seen, you, know, you pay attention, you can start smelling that rain is coming, can't you? I mean, we in California, we're kind of lightweights when it comes to, to, to rain. But um, there is something called observing the natural order and actually understanding this is what's going to happen. That is a form of knowledge. Well, it's interesting that they understood how to predict the weather. Okay? But they had no idea how to apply it to the weather's master, who, by the way, in earlier chapters in Matthew, walked on water, stilled the storm, and scared his disciples, and they go, what? Who is this that even the storm, the winds, and the waves obey him? The term to discern, it's a forceful word. It has to do with the ability to distinguish one thing from another. It's the ability to make a judgment based on careful 
detailed information. It's the ability to separate and arrange something and thus render a correct judgment. Okay? Today, we have here, what we have here is the equivalent of both conservative and liberal scholars asking Jesus for a miraculous sign to prove his identity. And what they can distinguish, unfortunately, when it comes to ultimate issues, they can't. Which has to do with who Jesus is. And I'm sure the applications are just racing through some of your minds if you're paying attention at all. How today, we really throw ourselves into all kinds of disciplines, areas of knowledge. When it comes to ultimate issues, human beings, very, very brilliant human beings, throw their mind away. And it's so sad. And a lot of Christians do the same. And that ought not be. What they can't distinguish is this. That they are utterly at God's mercy when it comes to knowing the incarnate Son's identity who was right before them. This is what's going on in this text. Which means we all need divine assistance from the Father and the Spirit and the Son to see who the Son is. And without that, there's no hope. Now, they are given a sign, but it's not what they expected. They're given the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? Well, what he does is, Jesus does not, first of all, leave them signless. So he does respond to them. But they don't get what they're expecting. And instead, by pointing to Jonah, what he's doing is, he's directing them to what has already been revealed. Did you hear that? To my Pentecostal and charismatic brothers and sisters who love Jesus, be careful that you are so into your experience that you ignore what has already been revealed. And the reason I say that is because your experience comes and goes and it is, uh, there's a high degree of subjectivity. That often negates the objective, revealed, written word of God. And then all kinds of bad things follow that. What did Jonah do? He preached repentance. Jonah preached repentance for redemption. And so did Jesus as a result. Many would be saved. We know what happened in Nineveh, if you've read the account. Now, Jonah figuratively went to the depths of the grave. When he wanted to die, instead of wanting to preach to the enemies of Israel, he was glad to be thrown over. I'd rather die and disobey God than to preach the truth because God I know you're merciful and if they hear and repent you're going to have mercy on them I know you 
That dude was hard-hearted. Are you hard-hearted like that? Am I? So just as Jonah went to the depths of the sea in the belly of a large fish and finally came up, Jesus, through his death and resurrection from the dead, fulfilled that picture of what took place in Jonah's account. Again, he's referring back to what God has already revealed. Now, that event really happened. It was not many um, the death of Christ the death of Christ by some is denied the death of Christ is denied uh, by Muslims in their theology in their book how could God you know do that to one of his prophets okay well their view contradicts what scripture teaches and you're going to ultimately listen to somebody. question is, are they worthy to be listened to? The resurrection. The resurrection of Christ is also doubted. All kinds of stories and all kinds of alternative scenarios are put forth. But make no mistake about it. The, the, the scriptures are very clear. This actually took place. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it was not just his spirit, it was his body. In fact, resurrection presupposes a physical thing. Okay? Biblically. So, Jesus' identity is doubted, it is challenged, it's questioned by the blind, unbelieving scholars of his day, as is often the case today. And yet, now his identity is going to be disclosed, it's going to be revealed by the Father to Peter, Jesus' disciple. So here his identity is disclosed. Verse 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. In the Bible, there are many great things. And there are at least three greats that I have seen that are really clear to me in the Bible. Number one is the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Then number two is the great commission. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, therefore, and all authority has been given to him. Therefore, go into all the world and preach the gospel to the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have taught you, everything that I have shown you, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And now what we see here in this text is the great confession. It really is. Because it has to do with the centerpiece of history, who is God the Son incarnate. <clears throat> 
Now, just like in his day, opinions abounded, so they do in our day. So opinions abounded regarding who Jesus was. And the single most important question anyone can resolve because of the weight of humanity's eternal destiny is to finally and forever settle who you think Jesus is. They had to do it then. In this text, you got to do it today. You get this right, and eternal, unspeakable joy awaits in the merciful presence of God. You get this wrong, and unspeakable horror awaits in the wrathful presence of God. What makes hell hell is not Satan. Ultimately, it is the wrathful presence of God. Vaughn Scott, the first lead singer, ACDC. Highway to Hell, you ever hear that song? No stop signs, speed limits, nobody's going to hold me down. Um, I forget the words, but... uh, Hey mama, look at me. I'm... uh, I'm on the way to the promised land. All my friends are going to be there. It's going to be a party. That's a lie. Great tune. Horrible theology. Horrific end. The rich man and Lazarus is a picture of what hell will be like. Think about this. The rich man has no name when he dies. He's in hell. Lazarus does. There is something about a name that gives a person purpose, identity, something to look forward to. You know, Jesus is going to give each and every one of us a new name. Did you know that? You're going to get a new identity. So here's the question. If we were to ask this question today, if Jesus were to say, Hey Joe, what are people saying about me today? What do you think Joe would say? Jesus is God, the Son. Jesus is a nice guy. Jesus is a what? A great teacher. Jesus is whatever. A guy with long hair. Jesus is a good prophet. He's way more than that. Some, some use, you know, some would even say things like they were saying in his day, we clean it up. But they said he was an illegitimate child. We have a name for that that I won't repeat. That you know. I'm trying to clean up my act here. Now, if Jesus were to talk to, to Peter. And ask him, hey, what are people saying about me? It might go something like this. Especially in America. 
might say, you know, Jesus, uh, I was just reading the Barna report the other day online. And um, they said that, uh, you know, they, they check out cultural trends and they look at what people value and believe. Uh, you know, the attitudes and behaviors of, of what's going on in America. And, 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 and here's some of the things that they, they say about you, Jesus. Uh, they, uh, one of the things is that most Americans believe that you actually existed. So uh, at least you, you existed. Um, but but there are, uh, there's a younger generation, but it's not really different from the older generation. Uh, we call them millennials. And um, they, 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 they don't think you were God incarnate. And definitely, they definitely don't think you were sinless. Huh? So, so what, what about in his day? Nothing really different. Most people were saying something Jesus was not. They were getting his identity wrong. Until the Father showed Peter the great confession. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now this phrase, the Son of Man, reveals that Jesus is not only the son of Joseph of Nazareth, which is the most self-used uh, title Jesus has in the Gospels. In Matthew, this phrase is a phrase of derision to describe Jesus who associates with sinners. It's associated with Jesus' catastrophic second coming for those that are not ready for it. It's used to emphasize Jesus as the rejected one on earth. And it's also associated with describing Jesus as the God-man. Here's Messiah, God incarnate, before them. The Son of the Living God. Again, this phrase is the most popular title of Jesus in the New Testament, which points to his divinity, which is what got him killed. And in Matthew, as Son of God, here's what we know. As Son of God, Jesus knows the Father's will and has unique authority to interpret it in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7. through 7. As Son of God, Jesus' disciples become sons of God who can now call Jesus' Father our Father. And because they do that, their goal in life is to obey the will of the Father. As Son of God, Jesus' obedience to death and His subsequent resurrection qualifies Him, according to the court of heaven, to be the one who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. So, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What does Jesus do? No, you're wrong. I'm not. He said, oh, blessed are you, Simon, Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This word blessed, makarios, it's deeply rooted in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, okay? where the fear of Yahweh and pleasure in his commandments makes one not gloomy, but glad. This term is where the Lord's hand is seen through trials. The psalmist, specifically Job, there is a kind of gladness that is the result of coming through hardship and suffering. Also, to be blessed 
is where one is purified from sin. Where one practices justice. Where one cares for the needy and does not transgress with the lips. To be blessed is a massive thought in the scriptures. It is not, oh, I'm happy. It's not glib. It's deeply connected to who God is and what He gives to those that are in right relationship with Him. It is utter joy. Did you hear that? It is utter joy. Like today, the peoples of antiquity thought that somebody was blessed if they had wealth. Right? You got money. Why? You got money and get the good things in life. You're blessed if you got power, right? We all love to rule the world. You're blessed if you have bliss, where there's a life free of pain, suffering, misery, and even death. Heck, let's freeze your body till we come up with knowledge to make your life come to life again. Ain't going to happen. It's not going to happen. We are not the lords of life. God is. And how about virtue? Virtue is a big deal more in the and you know in the war in, in 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 the old world than it seems to be today. And that is that if you are upright morally, then you're blessed. But in Matthew, the source of Peter's happiness is immaterial. It is not physical. It is the knowledge of the Holy One. It is coming to understand who Jesus really is, and it was not accidental. The Heavenly Father is said to have revealed the Son to this disciple. This is a theme in the Gospel. Check out Matthew 11, uh, where the persons of the Trinity, specifically the Father and the Son, are involved in revealing the identity of Christ's mission, message, and His identity. So, Choose to either reveal or conceal each other to those hearing the message of Christ. This is what the Father and the Son do. You are not the ultimate actor in coming to know God. God is. Did you hear that? Does that bother you? You autonomous creature. You autonomous, finite, needy human being. Does that bother you? If it does you're going to have to come to terms with it because it's a reality. That term, reveal, this, this really impacted me. In the language of the New Testament, that is something that does not come from within the creature. It comes from outside the creature where the creature is acted upon. By the Almighty Creator. God the Father. Who discloses something of the heavenly origin of Jesus' identity to the creature, Peter. Which was previously hidden. It was a mystery. It was a mystery. So Jesus' identity is doubted points them to Scripture. Then Jesus' identity is disclosed. Again, points them 
It is the author of the scripture that reveals the scripture to Peter, the father. And now Jesus' demand is definite. Verses 21 through 28. 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Isn't that our biggest problem? I mean, isn't essentially that... To, to just boil it down to a core problem. That's our biggest problem. How we think will govern the way we live. Now Jesus' identity grounds his demand. He has shown, God the Father has revealed, this is the God-man. This is Messiah and this is Yahweh. Now the reason Jesus' demand is definite or absolute is precisely because of who he is. And there's a term in the Gospels, I think it's in Mark, where um, John the Baptist sees him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. I think it's in Mark, right? Anyway, it's in one of the Gospels. Uh, Now there's no greater being... There's no greater being because he's the source of all that exists and is therefore self-existent, which means there's no greater treasure than God himself. Now this is God the Son, and he is called Lamb of God. So there's no other figure in history who has ever claimed the claims of Christ. No other creature has ever, or uh, uh, amazing thinker, has called himself the self-existent creator and sustainer of all that exists. The one who forgives sins and is thus mankind's only redeemer. So that everyone's eternal destiny depends on their proper, humble response to them. Nobody has ever said that except for Jesus. Somebody years ago, F.F. Bruce wrote The Hard Sayings of Jesus. He dealt with this kind of stuff in that book you got to come to some kind of conclusion. This is either true or it's not. And if it's true, the, the, the stakes are the highest they can be. Lamb of God. I'm kind of deviating from this text, but I'm not. Because it's part of who Jesus is, part of Christ's identity. As the God-man, as the man, Paul calls him the last Adam, the second Adam. This is very important. His, the term Lamb of God presupposes that His incarnation is, uh, not, does not just include His life and death, but it presupposes His resurrection. That His sacrifice, which in the book of Matthew will shortly take place, is the goal for, how, for why He was born. The reason Jesus was born was to die for the sins of many. 
and to bring many sons and daughters into the fold. That's why he died. To satisfy the justice of God and the love of God. To demonstrate the justice of God and the mercy of God. And you hold those in utter amazement together. God is not one-dimensional. I love to tell my friends. God is not a one-dimensional being. He's not just love. Essentially, God is holy, and from His holiness, all of His attributes obtain. He's all wise. He's all good. He's all powerful. He's all just. He's all merciful. He's all creative, baby. I tell you that right now. He is the architect of architects. The engineer of engineers. The artist of all artists, Michelangelo. Think about that. So, the great confession is followed by the great confusion. Peter goes on a dime from revelation knowledge to utter, forget what God has revealed to me, and now starts speaking through Satan. Does that scare you at all? I'll tell you what. It scares me to be up here. You may think it doesn't, but it does. Because I know that we all stumble in many ways. And I know I am going to receive a stricter judgment from God because of what I teach and how I live. Because it impacts a whole lot of other people. So it is no small matter what we say. And right here, we see something very astounding and sobering. We see here something that we must never think that we are beyond what Peter is doing. Just go beyond what Scripture has already revealed. Go beyond what Scripture has already revealed concerning the identity of Christ, concerning who He is, His life, death, resurrection. Go beyond that and you're going to get in trouble. Because this book that we call the Bible, the 66 books that are in here, these are, as one dead scholar has said, the words of God in the words of men. God has spoken. God has spoken. So, what's hidden from us is not to God. Well, what is that? God. God knows himself, right? Kind of like you know yourself in a limited way, right? I don't know you unless you reveal yourself to me. How? Through words and actions. And God has revealed himself that way to us as well. Through words and actions. So, there's something going on which is very applicable today. On the Jewish eschatological calendar, their theological grid had no category for a dying Messiah. And neither did the devil. 
But God in His wisdom pulled off the plan of plans and used His enemies to accomplish His predetermined will, according to Acts. A dying and rising Messiah was not on the radar of any Jew. And God's plans are usually different than ours. Do you understand that? You who are going to school and you have high hopes and dreams for continuing, not continuing, you're making plans, there are things that you've not shared with anybody. You're kind of scared to open up and say, this is what I want to do. This is where I see myself going. What if that doesn't happen? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? My encouragement to you, entrust yourself to he who is faithful and true and knows what's best for your life. Ultimately, you and I are going to decide to listen to a word from either the creature or the creator to be that which ultimately throws the trajectory of our lives forward. Like a top. You know a spinning top? Any of you guys know what a spinning top is? So, this by the way, rather than being interested in God's plans, Peter, like so many today, and I hope it's not us, was more interested in his thoughts and design for happiness, not God's. At the core, that's what it is. Remember, he's blessed, right? Now, he's acting like a damned soul. That is, the way people think is usually contrary to God's thoughts, and nothing is clearer than that here. You know what that means? This is another clue, another pointer to the faithfulness of this book. Human beings love their pride and never want to relinquish it. It's just kind of how we're bent. Well, this book unmasks and removes the clothes of our pride and shows us who we are for who we are. It's not a pretty picture. We're kind of seeing that here. I mean, can you imagine Jesus telling you, Joe, get behind me, Satan? Or Alex, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. Can you imagine what that would feel like? You're definitely not on the pinnacle. I don't think you can feel any lower than that. But for the mercy of God, one of them repented, the other one committed suicide. Judas. So now this brings us to the climax of the message which really has to do with the cost of discipleship. And there's a reason for this cost. It's grounded in Jesus' identity, and it's also grounded in coming judgment. Let's read. Verse 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? 
4, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then repay every man according to His deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Verse 24, Jesus said to His disciples, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. I remember being a young Christian, it's like, yeah, man, yes. And it was real. I just didn't realize the depth of the commitment. The longer you walk, the more God shows you what is required. But He supplies the power to follow. It's not on our own strength. Okay? So, first of all, if anyone wishes to come after me. This has to do with, do you want Jesus to be your leader? Do you want Him to be the one you are ultimately following because you are ultimately following someone you know this thing of being a maverick right lone rangers who are lone rangers following themselves <laughs> it's kind of weird have you ever felt like I'm beside myself right no really you're following you're either going to follow the creature or you're going to follow the creator you're either going to make Christ's words ultimate or somebody else's ultimate. It's what, those are the only two options. Unless monism is true and this is all a dream and, you know, it's not real, which is utterly bizarre and weird and doesn't make sense. Not in touch with reality. This has to do with you're moving one way. And you switch the way you're moving and you go the other way. What does that sound like biblically? What? Repentance. That's, that's really what he's, he's teaching repentance here. Do you want to follow Jesus as your leader? If so, something radical's got to happen. Something radical's got to happen. First of all, you need to get his identity correctly. Secondly, you're at the Father's mercy. Now that you get his identity, thirdly, here it comes. Here it comes. You must deny yourself. What the heck does that mean? That sounds utterly uh, 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 horrible. That sounds like I'm, I'm, I'm getting a ticket you know, to death. Well, you are actually. But it really sounds like a miserable reality. Nothing can be further from the truth. Nothing can be further from the truth. He must deny himself. I want you to note this is not an option. But this is a command that you, the individual, has to do. God does not do it for you. I, I hope that the categories of regeneration, what comes first, faith or uh, regeneration, because that's what's going on here. What comes first, faith or regeneration? Do I choose Christ? Does He choose me? I'm thinking it's the latter here. 
And the proof of that is my decision making. That's what I think is going on here. It makes logical sense to me. So, Jesus won't do this for you. Mom and dad won't do it for you. Your spouse won't do this for you. Your boyfriend, girlfriend, significant other. This is very, very personal. And it gets very, very uncomfortable. To deny yourself is to act in a holy, W-H-O, holy, unselfish manner. It can also mean to give up your personality. To be without regard for your advantage or convenience. To reject or wish to know nothing of. It can also mean to disown. That's the nuance of what that of, 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 that, of that phrase to deny yourself and, and my understanding is this is to follow Christ a person you friend and I absolutely must change our former status from what it once was and you fill in the blank to a new one there is a new identity being embraced if you were known as the jock who was the life of the party and led all kinds of people into sin if you're following Christ now you are the redeemed jock who is now leading people to Christ and through word and deed are demonstrating the genuineness of your confession. Now in Matthew's Gospel, the emphasis is on belonging to the kingdom of God with King Jesus as our leader. But to follow Jesus as leader, there is a price. He says, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. What in the world does that mean? Well, to take up your cross. First of all, crucifixion in the ancient world was a brutal method of execution. The Persians, the Indians, the Greeks, Syrians... Romans, they all practiced it. Crucifixion in the ancient world, what it would do, it would not damage any vital organs, but it would assure a slow and painful death through asphyxiation. As the muscles used for breathing increasingly grew weary and were drained of any power. Crucifixion in the ancient world was an affair where one's nakedness was public, and where one was the object of public ridicule. Crucifixion accounts in the ancient world are sparse. Because the literary elite did not fancy dwelling on this horrific sight. I don't know when it began to be popular in the history of the church for people to wear crosses. I, I don't know. But it definitely, it was a horrible thing that took place. For one to take up their cross, what I think Jesus is saying here is this, that not only is the road marked with ridicule and suffering, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad 
For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. For you to take up your cross, it's not only marked with ridicule and suffering as Jesus' life was, but it is also marked by a certain kind of brutality, which is sourced through God's enemies. It comes through the enemies of God, whether they are Jew or Gentile. And not until this disposition takes place are you, my friend, ready to follow Christ. And that's what he's saying. And that's what he's saying. You know what that means? Easy believism is an abomination to God that fills many, many pulpits in America. Come, Jesus loves you. He's got a great plan for your life, which I believe all of that. But the underlying tone that follows is once you've prayed a prayer, it doesn't matter how you live. It's all good. It's under the blood. I say baloney. I say BS, which means bad stuff. I say that is Satan speaking. And I confess, I was once one of those. So, you want to become my disciple? You've got to take up your cross and follow me. Follow me, Jesus says. He doesn't say follow the pastor. He doesn't say follow that charismatic person that is so winsome. And us, unwittingly, ignore the word of God and start following a human being, ultimately, instead of the living God who gives us life and breath and all things to enjoy. Let him follow me. What does that mean? In the language of the New Testament, it means to keep on following. You've heard of the perseverance of the saints? You know who perseveres to the end? Those who keep on following. And I don't care if you're a Calvinist, and I don't care if you're an Arminian, if you don't keep on following, you are not a disciple. And like Beretta used to say, and you can take that to the bank. And I just dated myself and I don't care. That is, to truly be a Jesus' a Jesus's follower. To be Jesus' follower, he has to be the son of our lives that orbits around what our lives orbit around. What is your life all about, man? I mean, really. What is your life all about? Is Christ really at the center? And that's really a question I think all of us need to re-examine, you know. It's one of the beautiful things about the, the, the Lord's Supper and, and communion. It is a time for self-reflection. And it, is my life really orbed around Christ? Or a whole lot of other things. Now this does not mean that there won't be seasons 
where you as a believer and I as a believer find obedience to God's will to be more of a labor than other times. Walk with Christ long enough, I promise you, you're going to go through seasons, you're not going to read your word, some of you. You're not going to be praying, some of you. Maybe you're not going to do both, most of us. I know I've gone through those seasons. I'm not proud of them. It's just a fact. It's an unhelpful fact in my spiritual development, but it is true nevertheless. What it does mean is this, that if we really are in the kingdom, Jesus will ultimately be our reference point for all that is beautiful, for all that is true, for all that is just. That if we really are in the kingdom, Jesus' thinking will override the thoughts of all other thinkers. If we really are in the kingdom, Jesus and communion with Him will be the source of our supreme joy. And so we keep following. That's what I take this to mean. So now Jesus is going to explain the facts. He's going to say, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he'll find it. So, what in the world are we wanting to quote-unquote save? Okay. You're wanting to save your life or your soul. Well, first of all, there's something that's called death here, right? Now, death does not mean that something ceases to exist. It's many things in the scriptures. Uh, for example, death is a separation of the soul from the body because of sin. Genesis 2 and 3. Death... Um, is uh, uh, it's a power that dominates all of human existence because of Adam's disobedience, Romans 5, in which all humans participate, everybody dies. Uh, it's our separation from God where fellowship with our Creator is severed. It's a spiritual state that is physically illustrated through the death of everything that is finite, and that is everything created. Everything dies. Parents die. Children die. Grandparents die. Siblings die. Pets, our dogs, our cats, our birds, they die. Heck, our plants, they die. Everything dies. But it's been conquered by Christ. Death has been conquered by Christ and it's been conquered by His obedience and through His resurrection. Now those who's... Uh, now uh, um, the power of death has been eradicated and will eventually come to be in the consummation where the new heaven and the new earth is realized. Where Jesus rewards those who are His and those who are not. So, this word life, to lose your life, what is the life? This term is a, a, another word for it is soul. Here we go again, that word soul. Okay, and what is a soul? Well, it's the center of your inner life. This is where your capacities for feeling, emotion, desire, and 
decision-making come in. And in fact, the engine to decision-making are your feelings, your emotions, and your desire. It's the engine. The reason you study something is because you want to, right? Or you don't want to. You prefer this over that. And you are never an automa... You're never robotic in your decision-making. It is influenced by many things. By your soul. So, this soul really is a Hebraism for the self. You, the person. Now it is this that is in jeopardy of being lost. That means that ruin awaits it. Destruction awaits it. Not annihilation. Not extinction. This is a future fact. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross. You've got to deny yourself. Come and follow me. And now he's saying, for whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, that which you value most, that which is the engine to your decision making, if you are willing to do away with your former life, your former status of life, because you see the supreme worth of Christ, who is far superior to all finite creatures, all finite pleasures, and you're ready to make Him your leader, you're going to follow Him. For my sake? What do you mean for my sake, Jesus? Yeah. Do you see me? Do you realize who I am? I am far superior to all things in existence. That's what he's saying. Do you believe it? Do you really believe that? Do you trust that word over against a Richard Dawkins word? Do you trust that word over your atheistic friend's word? Do you trust that word over and above your Muslim's word? Or the Jehovah's Witness? Or the Mormon? Or the Wiccan? Or the Buddhist? or the Hindu, or the Jainist? Which word are you going to trust? So he says, if you lose your life, because you see me, he says you'll find it. This is awesome. Now what this is not, this is not the act of finding something you are seeking. Listen to me. It is not something you are seeking after. This is not finding something accidentally. Nor is this a finding or discovery after reflection, examination, 
or investigation. And I'm not saying God does not use those things. But that's not the primary thing here. What I am saying, what this is saying is this. That it's obtaining what is not yours. Which is God's life. Because God the Father chooses to reveal the surpassing worth of God the Son, Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, to you and to me. That's what I'm saying. I think that's what this text is saying. I think that's what Jesus is meaning here. So until that happens, there is no great exchange. And then in verse 26... Jesus gives further reason for what he's already said, and he rhetorically states it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus is deeply concerned with your joy. He's deeply concerned with your gain. He is the businessman of all businessmen, and he's using these terms to get a spiritual truth across. And that is this. There is no greater investment before the human race that one could say either yay or nay. What he is saying is crystal clear. He is saying, if you do not see the surpassing worth of the Son of the living God, you have nothing, even though you be Mr. Buffett himself. You want to forfeit? You want to suffer the loss? Unless you suffer the loss of something which you previously possessed, which was your treasure, you're not ready to exchange the treasure of all treasures, which is Christ, the God-man. If you're not ready to suffer for the cause of Christ, you will suffer for your own cause, and you will eternally be in torment. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What in the... This is a rhetorical question. There's no exchange. There is no profit. Duh. Obviously. If you see what he's saying, it's crystal clear. There is nothing greater than Christ Jesus, the God-man, who is offering the free gift of salvation to those who bow the knee. So if today you hear his word, do not harden your heart as the Jews did in Israel and God killed a bunch of them. Don't do it. This message is is not just for the non-believer. It is for professing believers. It is for those who are genuine. It is for those who are on, 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 on the fence. And it is for those who think they are and they're not. So there's, there's, there's two things going on here. There's two rhetorical questions. The first asserts that gaining the whole world means nothing if in doing so you lose out on being Christ's disciple. Secondly, nothing is more valuable in human existence than being a disciple. That should excite you if you're a believer. You should thank God for that. There's nothing greater. Your your biggest problem's already been taken care of. What did Paul say in in Romans 8? What shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Shall famine? Shall peril? Shall nakedness? 
My gosh, if you if if you live in America and one of uh, you know any of those three things are happening to you, you know, the average church-going person will just fall apart. And I'd venture to say some of us in here have experienced falling apart. Why? Because we're not trusting God's word. We're not trusting God's goodness. The bottom line is this: don't ever, 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 ever doubt the love of God for you, believer. Why? Because He showed it enough to send His Son to the cross. To pay your penalty that you could not pay. Because you owe a debt you can never pay. Now, what in the world's going on? What does Jesus do here? He's grounding all everything he's saying in the coming judgment. Don't miss this. If in preaching the gospel you do not proclaim God's wrath, you haven't preached the gospel. People need to know what they're being saved from. And essentially, they're being saved. God is saving people from Himself. Right? It's the wrath of God. That Christ redeems us and frees us from. And then he says, verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. What does this mean? means that Jesus is going to recompense you who belong to him and you who do not belong to him. He's the exalted king whose kingdom has no end and as the just judge who cannot be bribed or bargained with, we will see face to face. So Jesus, the one so many feel free to use his name as an expletive, the one who so many ridicule and mock, the one who many misrepresent, the one who, whose words are twisted often, the one who was and is doubted, and the, only, and the one who only the Father can reveal is the one who is going to recompense each and every one of us. Verse 28, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And we actually don't know what that really means. It could be the transfiguration. Um, it could be, mean His resurrection. Maybe the day of Pentecost. The destruction of Jerusalem. The second coming and judgment. Scholars are, are not clear on that. But the issue of tasting death, it's a figurative term, which means you will not experience that separation from God. You will be those who taste the new wine in the new heavens and the new earth. So Jesus here uses coming judgment as the incentive for His hearers to take up their cross and to follow Him. So the bridge to future glory and the coming eternal kingdom is the inglorious, listen to me, it's the inglorious, brutal cross of Calvary. So just as in Jesus' day, the educated scholarly elite doubted His identity. Same today. Just as in Jesus' day, the disclosure of His identity came only through the Father's choosing, so it is in our day. And just as in Jesus' day, His definite demand for following Him was the cross, so it is today, friends. So it is today. So how do dead souls come to life? When they see the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ, ready to follow the Master. 
Dead souls come to life when they see the surpassing beauty and grace of the God-man in his life, deeds, and mission. Dead souls come to life when they taste the supreme value of the king when compared to all other rulers. 